Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is your host for Vermont Viewpoint, Brad Furlan, here at WDEV in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Uh, we have a Interesting show today. Uh, we'll be talking with Brigadier General Henry Harder Jr. Uh, he was involved in uh, 9-11 uh, back when 9-11 happened. And Chief Master Sergeant Dennis Mercier will be joining us. Uh, we'll have a whole, whole discussion about uh, the events as they occurred, how Vermont participated in New York and uh, and all of that. At 10 o'clock, I've got Elliot Greenblatt, our friend from AARP, and we're going to be talking about uh, scams again. And last month with Elliot, uh, he really hit upon some things that a lot of Vermonters had been affected by. So we'll continue those discussions. At 10.30, I'm doing something different than, than normal. The open phone lines from uh, the 10.30 segment to 11 if you've got a 9-11 story or you lost somebody at 9-11, um, first of all, we're sorry uh, to hear that for sure. But if you want to honor that person or you want to honor a memory about 9-11, uh, the 10.30 to 11 segment, you can call in at 802-244-1777. Uh, for me, it was the normal uh, weekend, my daughter and I tending our sheep. It's been raining in Vermont this summer, in case people didn't know. And uh, so we were putting fence out for our sheep. We do rotational grazing, and uh, we had to work around goldenrod and milkweed, uh, uh, the milkweed uh, this time, because uh, milkweed obviously are the, the uh, monarch butterflies, and goldenrod's not good for sheep. So it was... Uh, Damp out in the meadow, but uh, we got the work done, and our sheep were happy to get new uh, grazing. So I want to—I'm very excited to welcome uh, Brigadier General Henry Harder Jr. He's in studio with me. Uh, he is uh, a command pilot with over 3,000 hours of military flying, mostly in F-16s. Uh, and I want to welcome you to the show. Good morning, Brad. Yeah. So. Uh, 9-11, a big event, and uh, Burlington, Vermont, was uh, awakened like the rest of the nation. But uh, you, the the military, the Air Guard, um, had a had a role. Yes, sir, a big role, as I think a lot of Vermonters uh, already know, but a lot of our Vermonters may not. Uh, the base was uh, like the rest of New England. The weather was great that day, uh, and. Uh, as those events unfolded, our F-16s were already out on training missions uh, over northern New York and, and northern Vermont and, uh, and New Hampshire. So let's start a little bit. The Vermont Air National Guard um, began back in 1946. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, we're the third unit uh, to get uh, federal orders uh, when the Guard came into existence. We predated the United States Air Force. The Air Force didn't break away from the Army, or it was the Army Air Corps till 1947. So they're the roots of the National Guard and the U.S. Army Air Corps uh, right after World War One. 
uh, and some New York has some some uh, history going back to the very beginning of what would become Air National Guard units. Yeah, but we started as a formation uh, just after World War II, 1946. And uh, apparently Harry Truman, who was frugal with a dollar, uh, realized that we just spent a lot of money on World War II and said, hey, we maybe we need to just pay people part-time or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I know that Harry Truman is, is was one of our proud uh, guardsmen that became presidents, uh, and, and obviously where he came from, hailing from the Midwest. So he's got guard roots as well, I believe, on the Army side. Nice. Uh, and I wanted to mention to you also, my dad was Army Air Corps. He was a Barry boy, and uh, he he didn't fly uh, military planes, but he did get a pilot's license from his experience, and uh, so he was early on. Well, thank you to you and your dad for his service. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 9-11, um, it's up until that moment, it had been business as usual. Um, a lot of the Air Guard uh, personnel were weekend warriors, we call them, right? And uh, so you had sort of a minimal staffing or something? Correct. Uh, the way we work is, you know, at the time, our base uh, with its full complement would have been about a 1,000 people. But during the week, uh, we have about a third of that. Between a fourth and a third are full-time uh, men and women of the Air National Guard. So it was a normal training week, obviously a Tuesday. Uh, and uh, the the base was certainly operating, but certainly not at its full complement. And what happened? What? How did the word get out? And and where? What did people do? Sure. So from the the operations group perspective, which is all things flying, we had uh, I believe six F-16s in the air for a normal training flight. We call it sorties, uh, and those missions usually uh, last about an hour and a half or two hours. So they had taken off right at about 8:30, and of course the first. Airplane tragically went into the North Tower at 8.46. So those aircraft were just kind of arriving in their training airspace. Um, and, as, and as events unfolded, um, the air traffic control, and it's called Boston Center over our airspace. So the, the, the nomenclature we use with the uh, FAA who control our entry and exit of the military airspace is Boston Center. And Boston Center came on the frequency and directed our aircraft to return to the base and land, but without any reason. And that caused the pilots in the air. I wasn't one of those pilots in the air that morning uh, to be very quizzical because that's, that's never happened in anybody's career before. So they were directing military jets to go home. Correct. All jets. So when the decision was made after they realized that there were – uh, U.S. airliners being taken over by terrorists, and there was something big going on. Uh, the FAA decided to close the airspace, so they directed all aircraft to return to where they came from or land immediately. Uh, I believe the thought process there is uh, if you have everybody that does not have malintent landing, then the, the, the jets that might still be uh, airborne, and we didn't know if it was going to be two, four, seven, eight, or how many uh, hijacked airliners were going to be out there at this point. So that's that was the reasoning for them to close the airspace. Right. And so this was really the second event of, of U.S. history of an attack on local soil and Pearl Harbor, of course, being the first. 
Um, so there's quite a span of time between Pearl Harbor and uh, 9-11. And so then everybody is at the air base and then you're – like everyone else, you're, are you getting more information than we are? Is there intelligence on yeah, this? Not, not really, Brad. I think most military bases, whether they be active duty, uh, guard, reserve across the nation, were pretty much in the same boat that uh, nobody f- saw this coming. Later, obviously, there were, were re- you know reports that there were some intelligence pieces that had they been put together, things might have been different. But no, we were in a peacetime footing. So uh, back to your original question is our, our pilots questioned Boston Center. Why are you directing us to land? This is this is valuable training time. And um, Boston Center came out on the radio and said, America is under attack. So that got our pilots' attention, so they landed. But what happened on the base is our leadership at the time, our wing commander, uh, Colonel Greg Fick, and the rest of the command staff started uh, reacting. Uh, our adjutant general at the time, uh, uh, Major General Martha Rainville, was in charge of, of the, the military forces in Vermont. So we all started reacting with the little information we had. Um, but uh, the, the jets came down to land, and then it's quite a story of what happened uh, and transpired in the next uh, three or four hours. We are talking with Brigadier General Henry Harder, and uh, we're talking about 9-11, the event that uh, really changed the nation in so many ways. And uh, I do want to I want to go back a little bit with with you, General, about sort of your um, your journey, um, how you did your your dad was a pilot, I guess, and and maybe your grandfather and yeah 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 Brad, I come kind of from a line of of uh, military aviators. So my dad was a, a Navy carrier pilot in World War II, towards the end of the war, and then two of my uncles, two of his brothers, uh, were also fighter pilots uh, during World War II. Uh, one for the U.S. Navy and one for, actually joined the Royal Air Force in, in England, and so I grew up with that influence. Uh, my grandfather. Uh, on my mother's side was in the Navy, but not a pilot. And then my grandfather on my father's side actually served in World War One. He was an Army uh, engineer uh, who saw combat in World War One. I. I never got to meet him, unfortunately, because he passed away when uh, before I was born. But yeah, so there's a, a line of service in, in the Harder family. And did you know at a certain age that this was where you wanted to go? I did. I, I was always fascinated with airplanes as a, as a young boy, whether they be military or civilian. Uh, and then as time went on, I got more interested in service as well. My grandfather's army uniform hung in the attic, uh, that his kind of his dress uniform. He was on horseback in World War One as an army engineer. And I used to just go up and look at that uniform. And so the idea of service uh, was inculcated in me at an early age. And then uh, as I started going through school, I, I really came with the goal uh, really before high school that I wanted to be a military aviator. And was your first experience flying military or civilian? It was civilian. Actually, I started flying when I was 14 with my with my parents' support. So I would fly uh, took flying lessons in the summer, uh, soloed when I was 16 up in uh, the Adirondacks at uh, Saranac Lake Airport. And, uh, and that's where we would have a summer camp. Uh, but I didn't finish off my license till after graduating from the uh, University of Vermont. So 9-11 happens, you are somewhere where we have the story of where we are when Kennedy was shot and where we were. When, so where were you? Yeah, so 
Uh, I was not here in Vermont, so I was with two colleagues, uh, Brigadier General Retired Dick Harris, who uh, lives in Jeffersonville, uh, and then Chief Master Sergeant uh, Retired Leo Besaw, who's from Williston. Uh, we were at a planning conference at Nellis Air Force Base uh, north of Las Vegas, uh, and it was obviously two hours behind time there, so mountain time. We were waking up getting ready to do a one-day planning conference for an F-16 uh, exercise deployment that was going to happen uh, later that year. Wow. And uh, so when did you make it back to Vermont? We didn't make it back to Vermont till uh, the Thursday after 9-11. So what we realized quickly is uh, that initially they closed the airspace. We had flown uh, commercial airlines out there on the 10th of, of September, and that's how we were going to get back. So initially they only closed the airspace till noon on Wednesday after 9-11. But we woke up Wednesday morning realizing that no, no airlines are going anywhere. So we jumped in our rental car and started driving east. You said something earlier that really uh, resonated. America has been under attack, right? This is what you were all hearing, and it, it's so unprecedented. It's nothing you had ever experienced. Absolutely not. You know, obviously, being in the military, you exercise and train for for war. That's that's you know at the bottom line of what we do. Especially in the in the National Guard, we that word national means you're a reserve component of either the Air Force or the Army, uh, Army Guard or Air, or Air Guard. So you train your whole career to potentially be called into combat. Uh, but we think of that as, as defending America, but uh, usually not inside from within, uh, for sure. So uh, waking up at Nellis Air Force Base uh, that morning and seeing the base go to a wartime footing immediately was new for all of us. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what would be first responders um, in Vermont. Pilots were in the mix of the very first pilots to get to New York. Is that right? Yes. Uh, you know, at that time with the Cold War being over, we still had fighters in America that were what's called on air defense alert. And that's something that Vermont had done in the past, but we were not doing it that day. Our mission had changed to what's called a, a general purpose F-16 mission. And the F-16s what where we were flying uh, at that period. Uh, but there were units still on alert. So the Massachusetts Air National Guard F-15s at the time uh, were based out of Cape Cod, uh, Otis Air Force Base. Uh, but the next uh, alert fighter unit uh, was, wasn't uh, was as far as Langley Air Force Base uh, near Norfolk, Virginia. So we had really scaled back uh, what we had during the Cold War, which was many units on air defense alert. But what happened that day, as we previously said, is our – our unarmed fighters landed, uh, and then uh, our commander, uh, Colonel Greg Fick, without direction from NORAD or uh, Eastern Air Defense Sector, started asking our very capable maintenance team uh, to get the jets ready because we, we didn't know what was coming, but we knew something was coming. And so we started prepping all of our jets with uh, live live munitions, uh, so in an air-to-air configuration. So 20-millimeter cannon rounds first, heat-seeking missiles, and then the radar missiles that we would carry. And he did that at some risk, uh, but... It was bold leadership because it's what needed to be done. So when the call came about uh, an hour later uh, from uh, uh, our, our higher command authority, how quickly can you be ready? Uh, Colonel Fick's answer is we have four jets ready to go now. So that's how we became the first uh, non-alert fighters to be over Manhattan at about uh, 1.30 that afternoon. So when you leave Burlington in an F-16 to get to New York, 
how quickly can you be there? You can get there fast if <laughs> if you want to. And so um, if using Afterburner and, and, you know, the rules are normal peacetime rules, a la not, not breaking the sound barrier, the speed of sound, uh, kind of went out the window because in those early hours, it was really the true, the cliche, uh, the fog of war because it was the fog of war. No one knew how long this was going to go on. No one knew if there was other uh, threat aircraft airborne. Uh, so our jets, once they left Burlington, were probably over New York in about 17 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Um, this is Porsche, not Volkswagen. Th- there you go. And Porsche, you know, uh, in overdrive, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what was – there were pilots you know were in these uh, initial jets and uh, what, what – what were they experiencing? Yeah, once again, I'll use that that term, the fog of war. You know, they took off with very little guidance, um, and uh, we just knew that we needed American fighters in the air uh, able to respond if there were more threat hijacked aircraft out there. Um, initially, with the FAA closing airspace, uh, there are you know many different frequencies. There are military frequencies and civilian frequencies. So, on a, a normal beautiful Tuesday morning in New in New England, there's a lot of commercial air, airline traffic, general aviation traffic, uh, corporate traffic, and and all of those people need to get the word that the airspace is closed to, and to land. And some reasonably so, uh, primarily general aviation aircraft didn't get that word. So initially. Uh, the military controllers on radar were were asking our jets to intercept unknown uh, radar blips. And often, all of the time, really, they turned out to be civilian aircraft. Uh, so they would monitor those and, and wait for them to land. Uh, a couple of times down near um, Manhattan, there were New York State Police helicopters that were responding to the emergency, but not everybody was on the same frequency. So really quite a dangerous situation because you have an armed F-16 coming in at what they don't know what that radar blip is until they get it visually. And then they say, OK, well, this is this is fine. This is a New York State Police helicopter. You might be spilling your coffee if you're in a New York City helicopter and F-16 pulls up beside you and checking you out. <laughs> well, I would, I, I would venture to say there was a float plane uh, aircraft that it was actually um, heading towards Griffiths Air Force Base, which is where Eastern Air Defense Sector was located. So basically our command authority. And I think this person was just uh, trying to get home. Well, uh, an F-16 came up on his wing, and um, you know, I, I was—I would like to see what the size of his eyes were at that point. So yeah. he landed his float plane at a pond, um, and then uh, and then our folks waited for him to uh, to shut down the aircraft. Yeah. So the initial pilots that that arrived in New York, um, they they didn't have any real. Um, strategic route, right? Or, or did they? Well, not a strategic route, but, you know, we have the best military in the world. So once these attacks happened, people started, the training started kicking in and, uh, all of the layers of our military started reacting in the best way possible. So very quickly we put up what's are called CAPS, Combat Air Patrol. So we were circling around Manhattan. Um, initially, uh, there probably was more than, than two jets there, so we're probably uh, up to four or six fighters in different areas being controlled by military controllers. And then as the airliners were, were landing at the closest airfields, there were what we call intercepts. So there may have been a, a, an airliner out of the ocean that was heading for a field in Maine, let's say Bangor. Some of our fighters would go out and intercept that, that airliner just to make sure that it didn't have any malcontent. Yeah, um, because re- the reality was you just didn't know, right? 
it, especially in those uh, in those first uh, hours. Uh, and so it took really the normally there's a chain of command, especially in something as as uh, um, a big decision to actually potentially have to take down what could be a threat airliner that's an American flagged airliner. Initially, those those very weighty decisions rested with the, the flight lead, the, the, the pilot in the cockpit of F-15s or F-16s and our Vermont Air National Guard. Thank goodness we didn't have to do that. But uh, but the rules of engagement followed in the days and weeks that, that followed. So it was really relying on your cha- training and judgment in their first hours. And, and our men and women in the air uh, did a fantastic job. We're talking this morning with uh, Brigadier General Henry Harder, Jr., who was uh, part of the Vermont effort for 9-11. I wanted to note, uh, General, um, Pearl Harbor, we had um, immediate losses of 2,403 people. In uh, 9-11, uh, there was nine or 2,996 losses plus 19 hijackers and a sad event. Yeah, Brad, all of us uh, join each other uh, in this day of solemn remembrance for our, our fellow Americans that lost their lives that day. And, and obviously not only at the World Trade Center, but at the Pentagon uh, and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah, for sure. And at, at 1030 today, listeners, uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we're going to have a open half hour from 1030 to 11 to call into the show if you want to remember someone who uh, you may have lost or just talk about your experience with 9-11. The phone lines will be open, 802-244-1777, and we can talk uh, more about that. Uh, So, uh, General Harder, um, along with us is uh, Chief Master Sergeant Retired Dennis Mercier, who was also on the ground uh, that day. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you, Brad. Uh, nice to have you here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your role was uh, back in the day or, or what you were doing um, the the day before and then the day of? <laughs> so uh, I was in security forces, which is essentially a law enforcement and light infantry mission set. So uh, when we... I worked full-time on the base as an uh, active guard and reserve member, so I was active duty state activated. Uh, so I was at home on my day off actually working on, uh, working on some homework, and I got a call to turn on the TV, and I actually saw the second aircraft uh, impact the tower. So my immediate reaction was to call the base and find out if I could get up there and, and uh, give a hand to find out what was going on. So I responded within uh, probably 30 minutes or so from there, and uh, I didn't leave the base for four straight days. Um, we actually slept on base during that time frame while we're activating more and more members. And so what was sort of the general – how much information did you feel you had? Did you did – did, was there an immediate sense of what needed to be done and what what was happening? For the most part, I would say – Information was limited, but uh, direction was clear. So we knew exactly what we needed to do because, one, we knew our job. We had great leadership. Uh, as General Harder has spoke to uh, a couple times today, uh, Colonel Fick was our uh, wing commander at the time, an excellent leader, uh, always leaning forward. So he gave us as much information as quickly as possible to get out there, do our job, um, and 
honestly allow us to do our job. Um, it was a very tumultuous time, and it was uh, very confusing for the folks on the base. We actually had contractors uh, that were doing work on some of the uh, taxiways and the uh, flight line, and uh, we had to escort them off base and kind of ex- explain as little as possible, but to let them know that uh, post-haste they needed to be off the base. So they were going off the base, but meantime, um, a lot of guard was coming on the base. This is, um, and, and did that bring you up to almost what would potentially be your full strength of a unit? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, it took a few, it took a day or two for us to get up to full strength. Um, we actually went into uh, force protection condition delta, which is the highest level that you could be at. So at that point, you needed everybody on base. Knowing that we had uh, aircraft that were loaded and, and flying consistently, uh, the amount of folks that takes to be able to, um, in my role, to be able to protect the aircraft, the folks on the base, as well as allow people in and out of the gate, uh, it it took a lot of uh, it took a lot of people, um, and we had to use a few augmentees here and there because we didn't have enough folks within the local area to respond quick enough. Mm-hmm. And and. So what were some of the things that were your major priorities in the in the first couple of days just securing the base closing it down uh we ran uh we actually got some humvees from the army and uh we were driving around with uh with a full complement of uh munitions that you would typically carry uh in a deployed environment so we had uh at the time M60s that were mounted on the vehicles um, we were patrolling the base on a consistent basis, um, so it was it was secure the base, make sure that the planes were able to get up in the air, make sure that uh, the folks that were coming out on the flight line were allowed to be on the flight line, um, and to some degree staying out of the way, um, doing our mission while allowing the planes and the maintenance folks and the uh, the munitions folks to be able to get their job done as well. And so that at that point, uh, General Harder, the the jets were flying in and out of Burlington. Correct, Brad. And, and that, as you mentioned, uh, which is a unofficial Air Force record for any air base across the globe to fly armed combat air patrol, meaning that we our F-16s were armed in our air-to-air configuration, uh, meaning we had missiles and, and cannon uh, shells to do our job if called upon, but for 122 straight days. And, and I really appreciate Chief Mercer, uh, retired, joining us because it, it points to the fact that, you know, the, the things that people see, uh, or hear is, are the F-16s taking off. Uh, and there may be 30 pilots uh, on the base for, for a squadron of our size, a wing of our size. But it's, it's really the other thousand people, uh, that team effort that makes the base run that allows, uh, that aircraft to take off. It's the everybody and it's from maintenance to support to, uh, the administrative folks, our medical folks that make sure people are ready to go. So the whole base, uh, was in a couple of days operating at full capacity, which at that point in time was about a, a thousand people. And then most people were put on, uh, federal active duty for a period of six months to a year, uh, while we were, um, responding to, uh, the global war on terror. And the, the premise of you just didn't know if this was it or is there more, right? Correct. And, and that delves into the, um, as I said, I, I ended up with my colleagues driving a rental car for 
a day and a half till we got to Detroit, and we didn't get back to the base uh, until uh, the Thursday after 9-11. Uh, my first sortie uh, doing Overwatch over uh, Manhattan was on the Sunday after 9-11. But in that whole period, everybody is reacting and, and doing their job. Uh, and as, as the chief said, you know, we had our traditional guardsmen that have other jobs, uh, cause that's the, that's the heart of the guard. So you have somebody that owns their own business, or they're a student, uh, uh, or they're a professional and, you know, a doctor or lawyer. But they just started driving towards, uh, the base. Whether, and we have quite a few folks that come from out of state, uh, New York, uh, other New England states. So they want, everybody wanted to be there to lend a hand. So it was, a, it was a classic kind of Vermont guard reaction. Uh, but back to your point is, our pilots uh, and the rest of the base, we didn't know in those first days and hours were there were there ground terrorists that were going to target the base, uh, all of that. And as as the days and hours unfolded, it, it got to be a, what I'd call a more steady state response. The the the, the named operation was Operation Noble Eagle, uh, which still remains to this day, pr- protection of the president and protection of of our key national assets and, and big cities. And so. Um, but there were some there were some trying hours. Uh, you and I were t- discussing off off air here uh, in the first day uh, when two of my um, squadron mates were airborne. Um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired uh, Barrett Rogers from St Albans and uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired Scott Baldwin from Burlington. They had armed F-16s. They were uh, over Manhattan. Uh, most airliners had, had landed at, at that point, and then the military controllers uh, vectored them onto uh, a radar track that they weren't talking to. Now, they weren't talking to the FAA. They weren't talking to the military controllers. And they did an intercept so they could see what it was, what was an American Airlines uh, MD-88. Uh, and I believe this was in the evening of, of 9-11, so the attacks had Howard hours before. And as I said previously, the authority to do a shoot-down uh, at one point uh, rested with the, the pilot in command of the fighter. They're talking to the military controllers, and they said, you have authorization to use lethal force if it becomes a threat. So this airliner was not on the, the frequency. They couldn't raise it on the radio, so they watched it as it approached uh, uh, JFK Airport. Um, and one was in a, uh, a position to... Uh, employ ordinance on it if necessary. And that's not something a, a fighter pilot ever trains for, uh, to, to take down a civilian airliner. So that, you know, that took a lot of, of um, discipline to think about doing. And so as it turned out, everything turned out all right, all right, and it landed at JFK. But those pilots had to go through their minds, well, what if? What if it becomes a threat? If there had been a erratic behavior by the airplane, then they would have had to make that horrible decision. Cor- correct. correct. Yeah. Wow. Um, and um, notably, uh, a number of the pilots uh, are civilian or they're commercial pilots, too. Right. Correct. So they uh, could yeah. be a colleague. Yes, absolutely. About uh, two thirds of our, our 30, uh, 28, 30 pilots flew for different airlines, America, Delta, United and, and others. So um, exactly that they're they're closing in on an airliner that could be somebody that they work with in, in their day job. We're talking uh, this morning with Brigadier General Henry Harder, Jr. and Chief Master Sergeant Dennis Mercier, retired. Uh, General Harder is not retired. He's working hard as ever. Uh, I want to, um, Chief Master Sergeant uh, Mercier, I want to talk about um, when you were getting people coming to the base, you know, um, all of the, the uh, part-time and 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 even the active ones returning. I had heard that also uh, retirees uh, were coming in and 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 uh, 
pitching in. Is that right? Yes, it is. We had uh, we had a number of folks show up that uh, just wanted to help and wanted to do what, what they could, um, serving in any capacity. So we did have quite a few come up. Um, within the first few days after that, it started to trickle out as more information came out. But we had uh, we had a lot of folks show up that uh, we really couldn't have done the mission without them. Yeah, it's an amazing camaraderie and and family. Really, uh, I will say that if I tried to put my uh, Boy Scout uniform on right now, it'd probably be a little snug, uh, but I'm sure that there's a, a way that you uniformed everyone who needed it. Well, we had a uh, we had a, a unit called the Vermont State Guard, so a lot of them are retirees, some are not, and they're used in the capacity of traffic control, typically um, when we have events on base, but in this instance, we're using them for just about everything. Yeah, I bet. Now, one other thing I want to ask um, either of you uh the it's not just the guard, right? There's families out there that are equally impacted. You're running out the door. You're jumping in a car. You're gone for days. Uh, General, what what's what's the extended family emotion like? Yeah, and that's a great question, Brad. And I'm sure uh, Chief Mercier can talk to it too. But yeah, really, everybody uh, is affected in that way. And. Um, for me personally, uh, I had, um, you know, have a wife and three children. They were all small at the time. And as I told you previously, I was out of state. So I was in Nevada on a, a military mission. So my wife was listening to the, the radio with the car, kids in the car, um, and, and listening to the events, uh, happen. Uh, and then for our folks here, you know, um, when you want to be with your family in an emotional time when the, when the country is struggling, uh, like so many of our first responders, police, fire, medical folks, you have to step out the door and they have to go through this quite emotional event on their own. So that that was tough. And that's why we also have great support. You know, some of our folks are chaplains on base, medical folks. So uh, that emotional support was a key factor. And I'm sure Chief Mercer has some stories about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Luckily for me, I lived in Winooski at the time and I was uh, full time on base. So it was not as uh, strange for me to be gone, but for some of the traditional folks that, especially out of state, uh, when they're told to grab their go bag and they might not be home for a week or so, uh, for the families hearing that information, the military member is, um, their adrenaline's pumping and they're, they're ready to get to where they need to go because they've got a job to do. But for the families that are back home, one, not understanding exactly what's going on, not knowing what's What's going to happen with their family member? Are they going to stay in Vermont or are they going to deploy them out somewhere else um, within the immediate future? Uh, a lot of uncertainty. So we couldn't have done it without the families. And luckily, uh, they held strong. They kept everybody in a positive uh, in a positive mental capacity. So it worked out very well. And uh, Sergeant Mercier, what about um, communication? Are are you limited with what you can sort of communicate back to your families, uh, update them, let them know you're safe? How does that work? Yes, definitely. Uh, nothing went out over uh, telephone or radio um, to keep OPSEC, the operation security uh, lines of communication, closed down so that False information or strategic information doesn't get out to the public. So they could tell their family certain things, but they couldn't tell them other things. Uh, one of them was, when are you going to be home? Um, another one was, you know, are you in danger? Is what's going on in the base? Uh, so it's, it's a very, very difficult and emotional time for everybody, but for the families back home, not really being in the moment, um, 
being able to see it real time, it, it was extremely taxing. Yeah, a whole big community there uh, impacted, as was, of course, everyone, the nation. Uh, General Harder, do you slip into a new mode? You're going from uh, peacetime to wartime. Uh, is your mindset totally changed? It is, Brad, but I would, I would venture to say that uh, – any military member in any service, once you get through your basic training, you get your on-the-job or your, your specialty training, um, that's what you kind of you prepare for. And once again, I'll use the the, uh, uh, the analogy of our first responders, police, fire. I mean, they're, they're always out there doing their job. But in the military, if, if uh, the balloon goes up, as we say, and, and you're in wartime footing, you do. You go into game mode. So you're, you're not in scrimmage mode anymore. You are – your senses are up. Uh, when you're um, a security forces member and, and you're you're um, protecting the base with live ammo and and uh, machine guns, you know that is serious business. Same thing in the air. You know you've got instead of their training missiles that don't have any explosive in them, you're you're aware, keenly aware of what is on your wings in terms of uh, live ordnance. And uh, I've heard the quote: "There was no book for going to war in the United States." So you really had to regenerate sort of your whole thinking about that. Absolutely. Our our command, uh, the military command called NORTHCOM, which we have now, which is based in Colorado, Northern Command, there was not a what we call a combatant command for homeland defense. Of course, we had done homeland defense uh, during the Cold War, uh, you know, thinking about the, the Soviet threat. But we didn't have a command dedicated to that at the four-star level, and that grew out of our experience in 9-11. Nobody thought of the threats uh, coming from within. Nobody thought of a hijacked airliner would be used as a missile against us. So we had to build the book on how you deal with that, um, and it was uh, quite taxing. Yeah, quite on-the-spot thinking, right, and yeah. and sort of day-to-day briefings and strategic everything. Yeah, and as I said, for, for all of our folks, the, the rules of engagement had to be written while we were going through this emergency situation, and uh, and then they were, and we responded like the prof- professional military we are. We came up with procedures for different eventualities. Of course, you can't ever um, – uh, predict what would happen. And that's, you know, nobody predicted this, really. You know, of course, we had had hijacked airliners before, but it was more about uh, money or, or demands. They didn't use them as weapons. And I'll say, Brad, the people that we're enlisting now are great men and women in both the Army Guard and the Air Guard. Uh, they weren't born on 9-11, some of them. You know, if you're 18, 19, 20 <laughs> years old now. And so uh, a lot of our folks uh, have to be educated about their time. And, and I do want to say both the Air Guard and the Army Guard, we need people to be part of our great team. Uh, and it's an incredible sense of, of belonging and teamwork. Uh, and both our Army Guard and Air Guard are known as, as the top of, of the nation. So if you're looking for something either full-time or, or part-time, uh, come see us. Yeah, and we had uh, – talked with uh, the adjutant general a week or two ago and and he was talking about all the opportunities for education and you know you can be part time you can really uh turn your life around absolutely and for, for whatever walk of life you're in uh if you know college uh training uh certificates uh electric elect, uh, uh, if you're going to be an electrician you need a certificate those things are expensive well the the amount of support we have folks that want to join and then reap the benefits of tuition assistance uh, you basically can pay for college if you're in the guard for if you're in the guard for 8 years you can pay for 4 years 
Georgia College. There's a lot more detail we can't go into today, but it's it's also a great team. It's it, it, the aspect of the benefits are great, but working with fantastic people uh, and then coming to the aid of Vermonters and things like the recent floods, uh, it's incredibly re- rewarding. It is, and uh, one of the reasons that uh, Vermont was flying over the one of the major cities, it wasn't just proximity. It's that your reputation was the top of the class. I would agree with you, Brad. Uh, you know, a lot of guard units across the country did amazing work, uh, and they still do today. But the the, the fighters that were over uh, New York, uh, it was the men and women of the Grand Mountain Boys doing that job. In addition to our Massachusetts Guard brethren and brethren in the, in the New, Jer- New Jersey Guard out of Atlantic City. But, yeah, uh, we also were over the White House and Camp David uh, often. We have been talking with Brigadier General uh, Henry Harder and with Chief Master Sergeant Dennis Mercier about uh, Vermont's involvement, the Vermont Air National Guard, 9-11. We only have about a minute left, but I want to ask you one more thing, General. Uh, patriotism, you, you uh, talked a little bit about uh, flags you saw flying. Yeah, as and I think we all saw this, whether you're in the military or not, in, in those tumultuous days and hours after 9-11. But I was in a rental car with two of my uh, my best colleagues in the Vermont Air Guard driving across Nebraska. And there was a sense, for one thing, you didn't see any airplanes flying because the airspace was closed and the, the weather happened to be beautiful. But all the heavy equipment areas uh, on the side of I, I-70 and I-40, they had their cherry pickers out and American flags unfurled. And I still get choked up to this day because you had a sense of America pulling together. It was amazing. Uh, there was the uh, patriotism and, uh, you know, we talk about, well, I just want to emphasize the, the, the readiness and uh, the way every, everyone came together th- that day and, and for another, uh, you know, 122 straight days. Quite amazing. I want to thank uh, uh, my guest, General Henry Harder, Brigadier General Henry Harder, and Chief Master Sergeant Dennis Mercier for joining us today and remembering about uh, the the bravery and action of, of the Guard, but the sadness of the event. Absolutely, Brad. Thanks for having us in this solemn day today. Yeah, thank you both. 